0: Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. Hello, CCF and friends. My name is Jake and I'm a senior economics major. Wait, please don't give up on this podcast just yet because I said economics. I'll explain how the subject might just be cooler than it sounds, and I'll also talk about some other things like studying half abroad, which definitely wasn't cooler than it sounds. Anyway, following the lead of one of my role models here, I feel like I should have multiple titles for this. So here's, take it or leave it from a type 1 perfectionist who struggles with doubt and accepting others for who they are and yet still hears that he is loved, or even when I don't get my way, life is still beautiful, or this started out as a personal side project called the things I've learned from four years at university, but I love feeding two birds with one scone. Like I said, I'm going to break this up into a few parts. Some things I've learned from studying economics, some thoughts about economics and faith, and then some things I've learned from my study abroad experience, which ended with me being sent home from Barcelona halfway through. If all goes to plan, this talk should be all over the place. Buckle up and please keep your expectations low. First things first, and speaking of expectations, they are everything. The classes I've been most excited for have often ended up disappointing me and the classes I've dreaded having to take have pleasantly surprised me. For example, I expected principles of microeconomics to be little more than another boring class about calculations and business and blah blah blah, and I ended up liking it so much I changed my major. It turns out that economics is not just about money and boring graphs and trying to explain why the economy is the way it is. Since I don't like making decisions on my own, sophomore year when I was debating changing my major, Dr. Jarvis explained to me that economics is the why the decision-making process for why people do the things they do, and then just putting a model on it for academic structure. He then went on to affirm me that economics is the best major for what I want to do in life, saying with no other major could I apply the creative side with the reason side of what I want to do and how I want to make a difference. You can't just give a well to a third world country as a gift, he explained. You need incentives for the people there to care for the well and keep it sustainable. You need them to buy into it. You need cash flow maintenance. Most importantly, you need it to start within the community there and get them involved, end quote. Economics is the why, thinking economically helps with the how. One of the first things I remember learning in an economics class was that the best way to save rhinos from going extinct might just be to sell rhino hunting permits and actually legalize hunting them, to give someone the hunters, some skin in the game and incentivize them to actually care enough to stop the poachers. Because before this initiative, more and more rhinos were being slaughtered for the illegal trade of their horns. The lasting takeaway that has come up time and time again is that sometimes the best solution is actually the one that seems the most counterintuitive. As you can see, studying economics has changed the way I think about real life, everyday things, from protecting endangered rhinos to toll roads to how many people are involved in the production of a single pencil. It also inevitably changed the way I view some trigger warning, political things, such as printing money, taxing, and trade wars. And if you'd like to have a conversation with me about the latter things, please feel free to reach out. I promise I won't try to change your mind. I've realized firsthand how futile and often very destructive, politically charged persuasive efforts can be. And even if I change someone's mind to succumb to my own viewpoint on a stance, what really changes? Which leads me to one of the main themes of my grappling in all of this, differing viewpoints. The most important lesson I learned about differing viewpoints didn't come from my major, but from lunch with my friend Chase, who was actually the first friend I made here at Truman. He helped me see how the reason that we can talk about politics together for hours on end, even though we don't agree on everything, is because we have an established a friendship going into every conversation, so he knows my attitudes, beliefs, and values, even if he doesn't like all of the policies I do, and vice versa. I've learned that when people argue about politics with whoever will take their Facebook bait, and it quickly strays from civil discourse, the dissonance comes because they take the person's policies and then make assumptions about their attitudes, beliefs, and values without taking time to know the person first. Shout out to Chase and any other comm majors who might be listening to this. Learning things from other disciplines and majors is so cool. Anyway, let's go back to the things that I've learned from my own major. Brace yourselves. I've learned that most of the people who preach capitalism see it as the best way to make the poor better off and that most of the people who preach socialism also see it as the best way to make the poor better off. We, on both sides of the aisle, want the same things and have the same end goal in mind, but we can't listen to each other long enough to realize this because our modes of getting there are different, and that is enough to provide the division that we really want. We have to be willing to just listen to the other side, because we truly don't know anything about it other than a grotesque caricature of what it really is. This one was a kicker. For my American Economic History class, I read a book called Slavery Defended, which felt really weird reading in the library and I would often read with the cover facing down because I didn't want people to get the wrong idea. Anyway, I read Slavery Defended and then its sister book called Slavery Attack to compare and contrast the arguments for and against slavery. And the main thing that I learned here was that people who hold different beliefs than I do, even in this extreme example of chattel slavery, are not automatically stupid. I begrudgingly learned that people can actually be very intelligent, even more so than you, Jacob, believe it or not, even when you think they are wrong. This is microeconomics, this focus on the wants and needs and differences and similarities of people on an individual level, and it's this side of economics that I fell in love with during my time here. This part of economics is a lot more like sociology than finance, believe it or not, and I can't get enough of it, especially this realization that other people often think differently than I do, and that my perception of what's right is often wrong. And it turns out that in a weird way that I can't really explain or understand, I kind of love realizing that I was wrong about something. So at this point, you're probably thinking, okay, he's learned a few things from studying economics, but where does God come into all this? How does economics intersect with faith? Great question, and a tricky one at that. Because politics are so intertwined with economics, and regrettably, so intertwined with faith as well, which makes this explanation rather tricky to navigate. But even if you don't know me and don't know my attitudes, beliefs, and values, I hope my perspectives and experiences can still be beneficial, whether you agree with some or any or none of them. When I try to align both faith and economics, I run into questions like, how do I balance the tragedy of the commons, which is a very real phenomenon where shared resources are plundered and depleted because everyone is able to use and overuse them, while no one has an incentive to actually take care of them? How can this truth coexist with the capital T truth calling to bring to life a community where no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common from Acts 4? Or, where is the fairness, something that my Enneagram type 1 brain is obsessed with, in the parable of the workers in the vineyard, where everyone is paid the same, no matter how hard or long they work? My list of questions goes on and on, and to tell you the truth, these are questions that I just don't have the answers to. All I can tell you is that I'm still trying to work through them myself. Economics often demands a black or white, right or wrong type of thinking, and that's why I love it. God and his imperceivable truth laughs in the face of this thinking as people like me try to fit his reasoning and his rationality into a nice graph or equation that I can solve. Economics is about knowing. Faith is about being okay not knowing. This is hard. However, I'd be doing economics a grave disservice by saying that this way of thinking is in opposition with living a life of faith. Economics when done right is all about practical ways of helping people. Developmental economics can be a powerful, real-world avenue for bringing God's love and fairness to the alien, orphan, and widow. Economics feels like a great way to combine real-world fairness with God's justice for the oppressed. One thing I can confidently take away from my study of economics is the realization that government will never be perfect because at the end of the day, it is comprised of fallible human beings. Government cannot be our God if we just get better people in office or give them a little more or less power. It's not my job as a Christian citizen to try to fix the world through government, which realistically just looks like evangelizing my political beliefs onto others. Rather, as a Christian citizen, it's my job to take matters into my own hands, to be more charitable, selfless, and generous on a personal level. I can't sit around and bleat that the 1% need to be doing more to help the poor, because on a global scale, the top 1% earns $35,000 a year with adjustments for the cost of living. $35,000. It's not fair of me to expect the billionaires to be giving more to help the poor when to most of the world, I am one of the billionaires. In the words of economist Anthony Davies, virtually everyone in the U.S. is a one percenter. What's really going on is envy. If we really cared about inequality, we shouldn't be asking Bill Gates to hand over the money. We should be digging into our own pockets and giving to the people who are poorer than us. On another semi-sensitive topic, it's not my job as a dual citizen of both Christ and the United States of America to go to war for the policies that I think Christ would prefer, but to get down on my knees, reach into my pockets, and be Christ to the marginalized. While I would love to use my economics degree to help less fortunate people and communities with their economic development to live better, safer, and more prosperous lives, I don't need a degree or any schooling to really make that difference. I just need the heart that Christ has relentlessly been shaping within me, no matter how much I've tried to fight it. I, we, have enough, and God will always provide if we run low. But if we are not sharing what we have with those who don't, and I don't mean trigger warning, complaining that the government should be giving more and or mandating that we have to give more, but instead we need to be tuning into our own morality and giving on our own volition out of this abundance that God has provided to all of us who have the ability to listen to a podcast. If we are not giving more of ourselves than the bare minimum that is required, then I'm afraid we're missing the whole point that Christ died trying to make. Although that feels like the best spot to drop the mic, in the spirit of authenticity, I'm going to keep going and briefly touch on my study abroad experiences, because the same God that is here in Kirksville, Missouri, was just as present in Barcelona, Spain. And I highly recommend studying abroad to any and all who are able to, because I learned a lot about myself, which wasn't always easy, by going to another country and being plopped into new, unfamiliar situations, especially in a land where the people speak a different language. Here are a few of my main takeaways. My fear of heights is less about the heights and more about me not being in control of the plane. It's a control thing. That's why I held onto the armrests and firmly pressed my feet down throughout every flight on the weekends. If the plane did go down, I wanted to be prepared to brace my fall and control what I could. How stupid. I wanted it to be just Kayla and I. There was no time for classmates impeding on our limited time there. Yet, I ended up meeting some really, really sweet and fun people that truly made the whole experience a lot better than it would have been otherwise. I planned on peaking in my four months of living in Europe taking the best pictures of my life, eating the best food of my life, making the best memories of my life. And while a lot of these boxes were indeed checked, I couldn't shake the ecclesiastical question from the back of my head, is this really it? Does all of this indulging truly feel like heaven? Why does part of me still feel empty over here? Maybe my favorite lesson I learned from being abroad was picked up not from any professor or class textbook or fun weekend trip that I went on, but I learned it from a homeless man sleeping on the sidewalk next to a sign that declared, Life is beautiful. Sleeping on the sidewalk. The cold, hard sidewalk in the middle of the day, while hundreds of people who life seems to have dealt with a whole lot more favorably shuffle by and pretend he doesn't even exist. And yet, for Alessandro, life is beautiful. This shook me to my core because I remember feeling like I was having a rough go of it that day, personally struggling to see that life is beautiful. And yet, I had food on the table and a bed waiting for me after my time on the sidewalk. A few days later, I lay down and took a picture of him sleeping behind his sign and it quickly became my favorite photo I've ever taken. I wanted to use it for my photo project, but for that I would have to approach him and ask his name and get a proper portrait. But what if he was rude about it? Wouldn't knowing he was rude to me ruin the photo? Even if he is rude and doesn't want you to use the photo, does that make life any less beautiful? Kayla asked. Does, insert whatever current worry you're struggling with, make life any less beautiful? He ended up being by far the nicest of all the homeless people I talked to, but she was right regardless. And I held on to this truth when I was sent home two whole months earlier than I wanted. Even when things don't go my way, life is still beautiful. (laughs) And now, as my four years quickly come to a close and the real world beckons me out of my comfortable hole here, I can't help but wish that this last year wasn't flying by so quickly. I still have so much to learn. I can't work a 9-to-5 job. What will my faith look like once I don't have Reed and Derek close by to talk through my semesterly onslaughts of doubt? How do I know I'll be okay after college ends? Have I done enough? To close, I'd love to follow Nate's footsteps from the only sermon that ever brought me to tears, where the words, healing doesn't come in three to five business days, pierced into my soul. And I'm going to close with a poem that I wrote last November that speaks to the end of my time here, specifically my senior year. If you've made it this far in the podcast, thank you for listening. Senior year is indeed hitting differently, and to my hesitant surprise, still different from what I was expecting. Whereas I had wanted non-stop memorable memories and no downtime because we were so busy making every second count, I quickly fell flat on my face. The difference has been subtle, so subtle that it took a while to realize that God speaks not in wind, nor earthquakes, nor fire, but whispers. I've learned to see the changing leaves not reduced to background scenery, but as magical rainbows I can hold in my hand. That red-orange and yellow-green leaves preach of the perfection and harmony. I've learned that fires can mean more than a measurable trade-off between warmth and stench, but the comfort of being in the sand that morning when the Messiah himself came back. I've learned that reading poetry late into the night with the craziest man I've ever met helps me think more clearly than any medication I've been prescribed. I've learned that the ritual of morning coffee with a loyal best friend often leads to laughing harder than the entire rest of the day can provide. I've learned that the first friend I ever made in college sees the one quality in me that for the life of me, I'm convinced that I am lacking. I've learned that when roommates don't do their dishes as quickly as I would like them to, it's not all on them to be better, but it's on me to reevaluate my expectations for others. And I've learned that the joy in this time is because it will soon be over, and that without an ending, none of this could be so special. Thank you. All right, take it away, Marty.